Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. The promise of eternal life has conventionally been the dangled carrot of religion. It is now the holy grail of Silicon Valley, writes novelist Lionel Shriver in a recent National Review cover story. In this episode of Faster Please, the podcast, Lionel joins me to discuss why some tech billionaires are chasing after immortality and the serious challenges that would accompany extended human lifespans. Lionel is a columnist for Britain's Spectator magazine. Her books include We Need to Talk About Kevin and Should We Stay or Should We Go? Lionel, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Now, in the uh, in the uh, National Review essay, uh, you make it clear you are not a medical expert. You're not a research scientist. You're a writer of fiction. Uh, so of all the things you could have written about, uh, both as a, both as an uh, essay uh, also in your book, should we stay or should we go? What sort of originally brought you or, you know, created interest in this topic of longevity? Well, I should also clarify that I, for someone who's writing about life extension, I am not immortal either. <laughs> so I have no qualifications for this aside from having, um, applied myself to it imaginatively. Um, the, um, the book you mentioned, Should We Stay or Should We Go, uh, is a novel about a couple uh, that has vowed to um, kill themselves once they both reach the age of 80 because they don't want to fall apart. Um, they they don't want to burden others with their own crumbling. And um, it's a parallel universe book that explores any number of different futures for this couple. And one of those futures is the why I suspect I was approached to write this essay for National Review. And um, it's one in which there's a cure for aging. So basically my characters live forever and they all, everyone in the world looks 25. And they never they never look any older. So I have addressed myself to what that future might look like and not just look like, but feel like. What would it feel like to address yourself to a future that was potentially infinite? And um, in the in the novel, it starts out great. You know, it's it was exhilarating to watch your spouse rather than get older and older get younger and younger and return to the age when you fell in love and um everyone is healthy uh there are no limitations anymore and all your choices are also potentially infinite you can Try out every profession. It's no longer a matter of, oh, what are you going to be when you grow up? You can be whatever you want, and then you can change your mind and be something else. You can move to any city. Um, all your choices uh, are just this kind of smorgasbord of what you might sample. 
And that seems fun to begin with. That's not, that sounds like that sounds like a near like a you know a near utopian scenario. Yeah. The trouble is that um when you think about it, one of the things that gives our lives urgency is finitude. That our decisions matter because you can't undecide them. The the way we choose to spend our time matters because there's a limited amount of it. There's no redo. And effectively, with eternal life, there is a redo. There's infinite redo. You can just go back and do something else. You can just go in a different direction. If you marry the wrong person, you can just marry someone else. And you won't have given them, say, 10 years of your precious life. I mean, yes, but there are so many years left that it doesn't matter. And the trouble is that once you remove that, the nothing nothing seems to matter and that is depressing and and that when you remove that urgency you also potentially remove meaning and everything becomes arbitrary and uh, one of the things that happens to my characters is their characters start to decay or in some ways they 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 trade places in terms of what kind of person they are. The, the wife um, has always been the more optimistic and, and reflective and joyous. Uh, whereas her husband was more programmatic and, uh, and more of an ideologue. And as the hundreds of years go by, he becomes much more himself reflective and philosophical and, um, and she becomes impatient and misanthropic <laughs> so, because character itself becomes arbitrary. And so in the essay, um, I'm trying to look in a nonfiction sense in, you know, what would it what would it really be like both emotionally and practically to have a permanent human population? And it, that raises huge practical problems too. Like you don't have any children anymore. You can't. Is it easier for you to come up with sort of the more dystopian scenarios? Oftentimes, I, I I'll criticize uh, you know sci-fi writing, television books as overly focused on the sort of the dystopian. It's almost like a lack of effort. In this case, is that basically justified? That it's very hard to write a scenario where everything kind of turns out okay. If people are living forever. It is hard to write. It's always hard to write positively. It's hard to write for me, even to, to write characters that are purely lovable. Um, since I don't know any. <laughs> um, and it, it's hard to write uh, happy endings. I, I do write happy endings, but they're hard to get there. And that you have to earn, I feel you have to earn them. You can't just have happily ever after and that's it. There is one chapter in Should We Stay or Should We Go, which is purely positive. It is, it, it, it's called Once Upon a Time in Lambeth, which is the neighborhood in London where they live. And um, it's the, it's the perfect old age. It's what we would all want. Um, they, they grow only more physically beautiful 
as they age until, you know, people are stopping on them on the street, wanting to take their pictures or paint their portraits because they're so striking. They grow only more in love and they have an only a better sex life. It gets more and more rich and imaginative and exciting. Um, young people admire them because um, they've they both started second careers and have, they've become hugely successful. Um, and young people flock around their dinner table and and want to hear their wisdom. And meanwhile, outside in, in the rest of the world, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian problem is solved at last. You know, Africa is thrive a thriving economic uh, power, um, et cetera. The, the thing is that there's a point mm, only a few pages into this particular chapter that you get it. This is a satire. This is the one scenario that won't happen. So, so ridiculously. like It's ridiculous. In fact, it's hilarious. <laughs> um, optimism can be funny. And and in some ways, it's also an illustration of a of, of kind of fictional problem, because without without bad things happening, there is no story. And what makes that particular chapter a story is the is the is your growing consciousness that this is not possible, that this is ridiculous, that that, that you are being you are being made fun of, basically, because this is what you want and get, you know, give us a break. You're never going to get it. This is this is a hilarity at your expense. So, you know. I am sympathetic with your frustration with uh, science fiction, and it's not just science fiction. Uh, literary fiction has a lot of, of unhappy endings and tragedy and dysfunction in it. That's the nature of story. It, it, it's it's a requirement. No, no badness, no story. And um, I mean, I guess it just it, it, the genres vary in terms of what that scale of badness is going to be and whether or not it's eventually going to resolve into something more palatable. But uh, fiction fiction is by its nature about disaster. Would your, would your critique be the same if instead of talking about living hundreds of years, our lifespan was doubled? Instead of everyone living to be at least on average 75, 80, 85, it was 150, 175. To a degree, though um, I think that issue of urgency of of how you spend your time once you bring it down to i'm um, for argument's sake let's say 150 years uh that's probably less of a uh that's probably less of an issue um but pra the, the practical problems do become more intrusive uh if we're all living to 150 uh then we we're going to have a huge elderly population and hardly any young people. And that poses a lot of economic issues. I mean, one of the things that I posit in the essay is that living substantially longer means the end of retirement. You know, we, you know, you can't, you can't live to 150 and retire at 65. It it's economically impossible. So that means working for a long time. Um, 
And the irony of this whole discussion, of course, is that the real problem we're facing is, is people living too long. People living too long in terrible shape. And that's the real economic crisis. In that Nash Review essay, you write that you're more interested in extending the human health span than the human lifespan. Extending our healthy years, but not necessarily delaying death, seems like a very different project. Yes, and um, you know, I try to make the distinction between uh, different projects. I mean, the a lot of the Silicon Valley people are are looking at um, longevity from the perspective of yeah, let's cure death, right? right. Let's basically try to live forever. Uh, but a much more modest group of people. Uh, and more practical are looking at not necessarily living any longer, but living well longer. And I'm very sympathetic with that project. Um, you know, I'm like anyone. I don't fancy falling apart. And uh, I would rather keep my wits about me and still be able to totter out on the tennis court and then preferably drop dead on the baseline one day. And that would be that. And that's that's a laudable goal. And if we can get closer to that, we'd save ourselves a, a, a fortune. When we talk about the Silicon Valley quest to cure death, does this really all come down to a fear of death by people who maybe don't hold traditional religious views about an afterlife? Or do they want to live longer so they can, I don't know, start more companies? What's the motivation here? Well, I drew that distinction in the essay. Um, there are two different things that might motivate you to extend life as long as possible. And one of them is uh, clearly fear of death. We don't know what happens. Uh, I have my suspicions. <laughs> um, you're not there anymore. Um and it's possible that the actual experience of death is not that bad, although the lead up can be pretty grim. Um, the, but the other thing that might motivate you is, is appetite, is desire, is wanting more. And th that is something I am sympathetic with. I admire people who generate uh, enthusiasm for, for living, for for everything that it offers for for relationships for for love for even for you know another good glass of red wine <laughs> um that and that that is a positive motivation for this kind of research which is going on all over the place i mean there's a lot of money being thrown at it um and yeah i i admire that i think uh one of the one of the questions you have to ask yourself in this whole life extension thing is how much appetite would I have for continuing to be here? I mean, how many years does it, does it prospectively give me joy to get up in the morning? And what would I be looking forward to? Is there any point at which you've just had enough red wine? which I find a prospect I find almost unfathomable. You know, if if we're looking at a civilization where people are living longer and it's richer and we're, if we, we're solving all these other problems and we're heading out to the stars, 
it seemed to be like I, there'd be a lot to be curious about and there'd be a lot to see and do. And I'd hate to miss it, I guess. For me, it's like I'd hate to miss all this really great, cool stuff uh, by only living to, you know, 90 years old. There's another chapter in which my couple, uh, as in most of these chapters to keep the story going, um, do not kill themselves when they're 80 years old. And uh, and they live to well beyond 100 uh, in relatively decent shape. They're okay, but the rest of the world isn't. Okay, so basically they live to see the end of Western civilization. This takes place in Britain. Britain has become completely overwhelmed with migration from Africa and the Middle East, which, by the way, demographically is very likely and is already happening. Um, and there's, meanwhile, there's a, a homegrown anarchist movement because young people see no future for themselves. The place is in a state of economic collapse. Um, and so, you know, they burn down parliament and they've shredded all the pictures in the national gallery, etc. Basically, Western civilization is over. And the question that chapter asks as you know, they're, the house they live in is invaded by migrants and taken over and they're exiled to the attic and basically eating dog food. If they could roll back the clock, would they, would they like to live to see this or not? And I think that's an interesting question because the way you describe the future as you see it, that it which inspires your curiosity, is more inventions, space travel, all these wonderful, fascinating things happening. Well, you know what? More than wonderful, fascinating things happen. Things fall apart. And I, I have great difficulty on my own behalf answering that question that that chapter poses. And the couple disagree. One of them would have been happier to die earlier and not see this. And the other one is so interested in the story that they've been involved in. And of course, if you're a newsreader, especially, you're involved in all kinds of stories all the time. And I certainly am. And one of the sacrifices of dying is not finding out how some of them end. Um, but the other one is is so interested in the story that even if the ending is dark, he he's glad to see it because he wants to he wants that narrative appetite to be satisfied. And 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 that that to me, that's one of the biggest questions on longevity. Um, do you want to stick around if the world takes a serious turn south? Do you want to stick around for that? The political scientist Francis Fukuyama has written about what he calls our post-human future. If death is an important and intrinsic part of our humanity, then immortality or near immortality moves us to being something that is no longer human as we know it. And because liberal democracy is built on the idea of human equality and a connectivity among humans, everywhere through all time, he worries about life extension or other enhancements undermining equality. Does that concern you?
Well, to a tiny degree, we've already got that differentiation uh, based on economic profile, uh, which does partially uh, determine your life expectancy. So people in um, Western countries who are themselves well off are likely to live substantially longer than either people outside Western countries or people within Western countries who who are poor um, and generally in worse health. Um, so we are not quite the same already. We're not looking at the same um, lifespan. One of the other things I did address is the likelihood that uh, should these longevity efforts be availing, the chances are extremely high that they would be expensive and therefore available to the elite and only the elite. And therefore that kind of division that we're living with all already would grow, grow greater. And uh, I posited that it was not impossible that the resentment of on the part of the lower classes could become uh, homicidal. I think uh, if you're really talking about effectively evolving into a slightly different species, then um, then you 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 would be generating a huge amount of political tension. And also you create this sense, and this is the kind of thing that science fiction explores all the time, you know, the uh, an, uh, an overclass and, and therefore a, a kind of overlord class who, that lives very much longer and is likely to be hoarding the wealth and living remotely from, from everyone else. And I think that's more likely than, you know, the elite uploads themselves to robots or a computer then when you were talking about the um the nature of humanity what it's like to be a person um i find i find the the disembodied versions of a human future unlikely um and i th were we ever to achieve it that's where we would really part ways with the species as it has always been. We are, we experience the world in bodies and, and therefore we have all these senses and um, vulnerability to physical injury and disease. Um, we have a very complicated relationship to our bodies, uh, which I've written up about at length it's of great interest to me um and and therefore if if we were in uh if we were in robots that you, who's you know who's injured arm you could simply uh, screw a new one on um or or much less if we were in in some kind of jar effectively <laughs> like those brains in a jar in 1950s sci-fi movies um you know, that never seems enviable, does it? Uh, to no longer have the, the embodied experience. I mean, the embodied experience comes with a lot of pain, but it's also comes with a lot of pleasure. Are you optimistic, meaning that you think 
this research is going to pay off in dramatically longer lives, whether or not it's immortal. People are taking this sort of very seriously. Again, we have researchers who've said someone who might make it to 150 has already been born. So do you think these directionally like this is happening and we, we need to be talking about it seriously now and thinking about it seriously? Well, there's never any harm in thinking about anything. Um, uh, and it's interesting. So, yes. Um, you know, my main concern would be further progress in, strictly speaking, extending long longevity, but not making enough progress on that business about extending health span. And then you've just got a bigger problem in your hands so that you've got great. You know, you've got a bunch of people who are 125 and they're drooling and don't remember their own names. This is this is not a future that we should be looking forward to, not personally and not socially. So it's that health span thing that I, th I think that we should be focusing on. And and that means, you know, concentrating especially on dementia research, um, continuing to uh, improve joint replacement. Uh, I keep waiting on replacing my own knees, which are a complete wreck, because um, I just want them to inject some stem, stem cells. <laughs> in them and not carve them out right. um so we should be focusing on medical technology that will improve the experience of of being older rather than just make people technically be able to to get older i mean i i and i do think a certain amount of deliberateness here as to you know where you put your resources is merited um i wish that drug that the fda just approved uh did better than delay dementia by five months for example i mean that's a start but it's kind of discouraging it's so small so um i personally uh am not planning on devoting the rest of my life to living as long as possible um, there's a kind of um, circularity that to that or a, an implicit pointlessness. Um, I want to spend what time I've got doing something else rather than just trying to stick around a little bit longer. So while I, I get my exercise and I try to eat sensibly, um, I'm not going to be one of those people who... Um, is totally obsessed with diet and a million dollars a year on this, this infusion, this transfusion, right? This Some of these people, this is what they spend all day doing. They get this one guy uh, who gets transfusions, regular transfusions from his own 17 year old son and spends, you know, he obviously spends hours and hours every day at his exercise regime. He takes hundreds of supplements, um, uh, I foresee acid reflux. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. You know, I, 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 if that means that I, I take uh, five years off my, my life expectancy and, and, and get to do something else and, you know, finally finish the last series of succession. I, I I'll take that. I'll take 
short and sweet. Lyle, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's been really fun talking to you. <laughs>